Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program. As theatre has evolved over the years, so has the voice of the playwright, as it encompasses many differing styles. And in the heart of the theatre district, there's a place that supports, encourages, and sustains writers, both new and experienced. Today we'll meet several talented emerging playwrights and the man behind New Dramatists as we explore the changing role and changing voice of the playwright. And we'll be back later to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. Behind the doors of a converted old church in New York City's theater district, the world of the playwright is alive and thriving. The building is the home of New Dramatists, an organization that's offered playwrights, both new and experienced, a place to develop their work for more than 50 years. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Eric Jenkins for the American Theater Wing, and we'll be joined in just a few minutes by four accomplished playwrights. But first, Todd London, now in his 12th season as Artistic Director of New Dramatists, tells us about the important and vital role they play for emerging artists. New Dramatists today is um, a really unusual place because it's this um, island, essentially, for playwrights in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. We operate in this church. We have two theater spaces. We have a writing studio for playwrights. We have rooms for playwrights from out of town to stay. We have um, meeting rooms, we have a beautiful library of their work, and this place becomes their creative home for seven years. It's a laboratory, it's the equivalent of, you know, the scientist's experimental lab where a playwright can come here, they can work on a play, they can throw things out, they can try things, they can fail, they can work on the same play for seven years, they can work on 17 plays for seven years, they can do whatever they need to do as artists during that time. When this place was founded, the word craft was everything. Craft was something you could learn how to shape a play, and there would be these discussions with master playwrights, and they would talk about what does a second act need? What needs to happen before the curtain falls for intermission? How is a play? What is a play? Um, I think that question, what is a play, is very much more an open question these days. And so what, we, uh, what was craft, you now tend to have conversations more about art or imagination or about voice. I'm not even sure voice would have been part of the vernacular in 49. And now we have playwrights who are so much about voice. The voice of the playwright has changed because the concerns of playwrights have changed. Um, people have, you know, since maybe the, the early 80s, they've been writing more about the cultures that they come from, the backgrounds that they come from. There's been a, an experimental tradition of writing that's really taken off since the early 60s. There are teachers who have come out of this community and other playwriting communities who now engender different values in their students. So you have students who write, you know, out of the kind of 
um, political and imaginative sensibilities that somebody like Paula Vogel forwards. You have playwrights who are experimental writers of literature like Mac Wellman. You have people who you know, study with Charles Smith at Ohio University who really are learning about craft and storytelling. So the, the voice is a, um, is a many splendored thing. This place is structured as a community base. I see myself as a community activist. Writers write for particular theaters in particular communities. So the voice is their own, but it's also sometimes the voice of the community as well. The world is bigger in terms of its ability to include lots of different kinds of artists. So if you weren't made for the Broadway stage and you were made to write you know, intimate um, pieces that um, take place in a small venue with a small audience, um, you have places to go. If you're a writer whose obsession is form and genre and breaking convention, you have places to go. If you're someone who um, really writes about people living in a particular area, you have a place to go to connect with those very people. So there's a kind of expanse of opportunities. There's a little less um, of a sense of where a career is heading because there isn't that kind of pinnacle of Broadway anymore. I mean, American playwrights are just not produced on Broadway these days. And when they are, it's usually, it's always in moves from other theaters. Part of energy as an artist comes from the jangle of different energies working together. And one of the premises of this place is that uh, writers do their best work in community with other writers, that they challenge and goad and provoke and um, they want to compete with each other and they also want to, you know, buoy each other up and sort of help each other. And that kind of energy and that kind of anything can go because we live in a world that has access for lots of different voices, that sort of jangle of voices creates a wild and free energy that I think is particularly felt in a place like New Dramatists because writers actually are free here to do whatever they want. There's no producer telling them, you know, make changes on Act Two. There's no director saying, you know, I'll do this play if there is no staff saying, we will select you if you write a kind of play we like, because the staff here doesn't do any selecting or curating. It is all about the writer, what they want to write, when they want to write it. Here, people do this work because they know what their values are, and it's incredibly inspiring. It's very moving. It's always invigorating. What I see is, you know, a conviction that this work is important, that the culture needs this work, that this is a place where people can speak from their deepest, most authentic selves, that this is a world, not just New Dramatists, but the theater where we can imagine better worlds, that this is a world, uh, the world of theater is a place where we can talk truth to each other and we can bounce our truths off of each other, that this is a world where we can expand what it means what we think about when we say we are human beings. And these questions are, bur thank God, these are burning questions for, you know, at least 49 playwrights at any one time. And we know there are so many more um, because these are the questions that maybe you and I in the course of our workaday lives don't always have a chance to stop and ask. So do they ask it because they're driven to? Yes. Do they ask it because they love? it? Yes. Do they ask it because they must? Yes. Do they ask it because they've chosen to make a life that is actually fun rather than obligatory? 
Yes. Do they ask it because they don't know anything else? Some do. Some know lots of other things, and they make this choice. Um, but mostly, I believe it's they make the choice because they want to speak on their voices in this world. Joining us now to discuss the evolving world and changing voice of the playwright are Carlisle Brown, David Grimm, Chiara Alegria Hudes, and Lucy Thurber. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, on this topic of the changing voice of the American playwright, uh, we're referring to some extent to a, a comment Todd London himself made uh, some years ago about the death of the great American playwright. And uh, it's been replaced, that, that character in, in lore and in life has been replaced by uh, the new emerging voices of the great American playwrights, some of them here at this table today. So I'm wondering, for you, how do you see the shift, the change? Carlisle Brown, how do you see the change in the, uh, the voice of the American playwright over the past couple of decades? Well, you know, I'm usually in a little room by myself writing a play, so <laughs> I, I don't really see the world. I'm not sure if there is a change. But I think, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, the great American playwrights and tradition, Arthur Miller and... Uh, the cinema and culture has sort of changed that idea of a play taking place in like one room. And so I think, you know, artists are taking advantage of um, the kind of theatricality or the kinds of things that the audience can do in their mind, you know, the things that they can accept, uh, you know, a light. Uh, you know, we don't have to stay in that room anymore. We can go, you know, anywhere. We can go to the North Pole. We can go in our dreams. We can go in our head because um, there's the development of cinema and television and, and so people have a, a, a kind of different vocabulary than they did in the age of Arthur Miller. So I think there are more opportunities to be more expansive theatrically. So I think one of the things that is the cause of the changes we're taking advantages of those opportunities that just exist, you know, in the ether. Well, certainly the, uh, there, there's been a change in, in the way we have public discourse today. David Grimm, you have some plays that uh, uh, operate on a different level of public discourse. You've uh, done plays that uh, harken back to the Renaissance, to the Restoration period, and yet you, your play Measure for Pleasure, uh, a fascinating play <laughs> that is very lively and uh, has uh, some risque themes at play, uh, would not be a play <laughs> necessarily that we would be able to see, have seen uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Mm. What drives that, uh, that engine for you? What is the engine that drives that for you? Well, I think an additionally one of the reasons why those models of the sort of Arthur Miller, the Eugene O'Neill, the, the, the great American playwright has sort of exploded a bit is I think that the marketplace has changed. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the growth, well, first the advent and then the growth of off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and sort of the dismantling of Broadway as the, the one venue through which uh, theater is accepted. And um, sadly, you know, some of, some of the fringe benefits in terms of, of that structure of a playwright being able to reach a larger audience. I mean, you know, here we are uh, on a panel on television and playwrights used to be Ser considered serious writers in this country in the way that, that novelists were as well. And that's no longer the case. And so there's a sort of proliferation, a grassroots movement, I think, that, that, that caused uh, 
uh, a polyphony of voices to happen. Um, as to my own work, I, I mean, I, I've always been in love with the classics. Um, and I remember quite young seeing Shakespeare or Ben Jonson and, and thinking, well, this is fun, but, but there's something antiseptic almost about it, uh, at least in the way it was produced. Uh, this sort of lofty, you know, well-spoken. <laughs> um, and, and I thought, you know, th this is all beautiful poetry, but, but where's, the, where's the real, you know, dirty passion and desire that's, that's, that's going underneath it? And so um, I'm very drawn to concepts such as uh, the dynamics and politics of desire, um, and, and I think that, that feeds a lot of my work. Oh, I'm sorry there, Sylvie. You misunderstand. It's Betty. I cherish. I wish for her hand. But I'm scared my prospects aren't terribly good. A kind word from you, though. That is, if you would. Now that is one clever and subtle evasion, worthy of high praise and congratulation. In all of the novels I have perused, I've never once read of that ploy being used. Well, Kiara, how about you? How does this changing voice affect you? Now, you're involved with a, uh, a new musical. You're known for your play, Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue, and for Yamaya's Belly. But uh, in the past year or so, you've become involved with uh, a musical that's a kind of a hip-hop musical um, in the Heights that played off-Broadway and is now coming to Broadway. Uh, this is an expanding form in a certain way. How, how, does that, uh, how does that play into your work as a playwright? Well, it's funny because, um, I mean, in some ways, In the Heights is the most traditional piece I've ever worked on. I mean, it really is a straightforward, classic book musical where a scene takes place and then a song that advances the plot, and then the song advances the plot some more. Um, <laughs> and so it's, you know, whereas in my previous plays, I was kind of fragmenting the structure a little bit more. With this one, I really went back to the classics and was researching those structures. But I'm, I'm really interested in what you said about the the living room play, kind of that how cinema might have changed that. And I just think maybe shifting family structures also changes that. You know, like in the Heights, it's not a living room. It's, it's an outdoor. It's outdoors on the street. Mm -hmm. And that is the living room. We got to go. I want to show you all I know. The sun is setting and the light is getting low. Oh, go in the castle garden. Maybe, maybe not. But wait to take a shot when the day is hot. I got a perfect shape spot a little ways away that ought to cool us down. I think that it's also that, for me, theater has always been the art of the people. And sort of the irony of where we are economically, that who can actually afford to go to the theater and how much it costs to make, you know, make theater, while at the same time in terms of like, for some reason going into the schools, or for me, like theater was an art that could reach me. You know, I came from a, a disadvantaged background, and it, it got to me. It can go into the, and, and that's how I fell in love with the thing of it being alive and being immediate. And I think it is what you're saying. I think that that we're we're creating different kind of plays because because there's a way in which um, who's who's entering the theater is different. I mean, we talk about Williams, we talk about O'Neill, and actually, you know, I think. 
I think in the same way that you were mentioning Shakespeare, I mean, when you actually read Shakespeare, that's all blood and guts and sex and Absolutely. violence mm-hmm. and not Absolutely. living rooms. And not, yeah. and not yeah. living rooms. No living rooms. <laughs> no living Very rooms. cinematic. And Williams, yeah. you know, Williams at the time was, you know, was quite risque. When you talk about the group theater and you talk about like that, there was a time when you were saying play, it, plays were for the people. Mm-hmm. It was affordable and it was it was more gutsy and and bloody than I think right now. Just economically, who can afford to go the, to the theater um, really makes what kind of plays get done in terms of mainstream, which touches on what you were saying that there's all these different paths now out of necessity, I think. Absolutely. Mm. And that then we get all these different kinds of voices and these different kinds of minds coming in and creating these different kinds of visions of what America looks like. And there's not that common space that we assume every family shares now. I right, mean, exactly. We know more than that. And, yeah. you know, so one family might have a living room, whereas another family has, you know, the hallway where one of the parents works or right. something. You know, it's mm. just, there's, there's a much wider scope of what that living room space can be at this point. But the, you know, the, but the family's behavior, I don't know how much variation that is. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite plays is uh, um, Parandello's, uh, you know, uh, it's the truth if you think it is, uh-huh. you know? And I think like, I would like to see that play played with like just every existing ethnic group that would be, you know, I mean, it would, you know, it would, you know, it would play out in the same way, you know? The, you know, people have certain mores and they drift and everybody gets in their business and it, you know, it floats around, you know, kind of in the neighborhood, you know? Could you talk a little bit about that, the development process and how important it is for you to have uh, places like New Dramatists and, and how that works for you? To put New Dramatists in the context of development to me is really doing a disservice to New Dramatists because to, new, to me, New Dramatists is... Um, a place to it, work. It's a place, it's a home. Yeah. It's a home it's a for home. playwrights because we, when we're working, most of the time, it's a very solitary profession. We're on our own working. And I know, at least from my experience, I can go months and not see another human being, let alone another writer. Mm-hmm. And to have a place where writers can come together and, and, and have conversations like this and others, um, and, and at the very least, there's the sense of, oh my God, thank God I'm not alone. But yeah. there's also, you learn from each other. I mean, yeah. yes, we learn from having our work put up. That's invaluable, but we learn most from each other, yes. from our experiences, and from uh, the problems that we faced. And New Dramatists is is, is uh, singular in that respect of affording a place that is not driven by production. It's not about you have to develop your play. It's a place where we can come together and make of it what we want. Yeah, no, absolutely. I also think that the thing, the learning from each other, I mean, I think playwrights are exciting in that way that we do, like, I trust another playwright's opinion before I trust anybody else's, you know what I mean? And there's this thing about sort of, uh, since I've become a member of sort of the New Dramatist Mafia, when you have something up and like, you know, you send out a thing on the, pl- on the web, the New Dramatist web server and all the playwrights show up. And this amazing thing of being part of this community and knowing that these other writers, or at least I know, will tell me the truth. You know, or some variation of it in any case if they're being kind. But the, <laughs> this thing of like, I was just, when you said I was thinking like, a, um, I went and saw, Kira was there too, uh, this, another New Dramas member, uh, Julia chose to play the piano teacher last night, mm. Mm. Um, which is 
a brilliantly exciting piece of work, but it's that exciting thing of sitting there in the theater, being excited by the production, being excited by the play, and also going, oh, wow, like this is really important work, and she's doing something I absolutely don't do and would never occur to me mm. to do. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So let me see how she's doing that. And I mean, that's <coughs> to me a lot of what New Dramatist is, and I remember when I was like new to the city and a kid and all like, the theater, you know, I would go and hang out there. And people are so generous there. I mean, I was like, you know, didn't know anything. And anybody will come in and just have a conversation with you, playwrights, actors. It is, it is a place of real community. Um, and like what you said, that they're developing you. You get to develop there. As, a, as an artist. Okay. It's perfect, the Playwrights Community Center. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also like a salon, too. Yeah, it's, totally, it's, it's totally. like a structured salon a little bit, yeah. where you can, you can sit and just chat, or you can go do work, and um, it has that feel that you know, work could be happening, or conversations could be happening, or drinking wine could be happening. Yeah. I remember when I first entered New Dramatist, and it took me a good year to realize that the camaraderie and the support was genuine. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> the first year, I kept thinking, this is bull. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So Playwrights being supportive of each other? <laughs> I, unheard of. Unheard of. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a magical place. Carlisle, how did you get started as a, a playwright? I read that uh, you were a, a seagoing man for a while. And of course, there's that uh, the, the tradition of Eugene O'Neill is a seagoing man, but I think it's a lot of his was invented. He, he, he was a seagoing right. man, but you did it for a, a number of years, for many years. Yeah, yeah, I did for. And yeah, how did that time. lead to your the development of you as a as a playwright? Um, I, it was just going from one foolish occupation to the other. <laughs> 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 but, uh, <laughs> one low-paying job that I love very much, you know, uh, from the other, you know. Well, you know. Um, um, you know, of course, um, the, for me, the whole thing about theater is, is the aliveness of it. You know, mm -hmm. when I came of age in New York, you could go and see uh, John Coltrane or Miles Davis for the price of a drink. And, you know, and, and, you know in those clubs, you know, the, sure. the jazz man plays, the audience gets hyped, and they say, yeah, man, yeah, and then that hypes <laughs> up the guy, and then, you know, the room is live, you know. Theater, you know, I like that kind of theater, you know. However, whatever style, you know, if it generates that aliveness, mm -hmm. you know, in the room is, is, is what I like. So that's really contributed to my predilection to being uh, a, a writer, a playwright, and interested in the theater. As far as my going to see, um, uh, you know, uh, drama, certainly, you know, people in a, a small, intense place, Trying to get along, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, under the adversity of nature, I would say, and so you know, those kinds of observations, of course, were always very, you know, interesting to me. I mean, uh, you know, I was I was a captain, and I had to kind of orchestrate. And then, in some ways, you know, being a playwright and and being a captain, you know, they call captains masters of the ship, and it and it's kind of like that, you know, and and. We playwrights, we're kind of like God, you know, we get <laughs> two people to kind of disagree and, you know, when the disagreement isn't really hyped up enough, we like, you know, all right, your mother has cancer. <laughs> 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 you, know, you, know, <laughs> you know, so, um, 
but, it, but it's mostly watching human nature in sort of adverse situations that um, the accumulation of that is something that is, uh, I, I guess, is my kind of dramaturgy that I carry to, to One my of work. my favorite sort of, you just mentioned that, one of my favorite little, uh, when I'm first exploring a play, um, is, is uh, I'll be exploring a character in a situation and, and uh, then I'll think to myself, what's the worst thing that can happen to them? <laughs> Make that happen yeah. and sort of explore a bit more. And then you say, now what's the worst thing that can happen? Make yeah, that yeah. happen. And just every turn, what's the worst <laughs> thing that can happen? And you do feel sort of like a sadistic god <laughs> sitting on Mount Olympus saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to ruin your lives. Yeah. That's yeah. so funny because I always want them to like, I always want my characters to live. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? I always want them to overcome and... Oh, you did. I, I think part of that comes from the fact that you keep throwing these horrible obstacles in their way, and their resilience, their, that's how I fall in love with my characters, yeah, and I no, want I'm them to succeed. Yeah, no, I'm just saying I think it's interesting, like, a different an approach, because what I found was interesting about what both of you were saying is that I, I tend to think in a weird way that life is so horrible, <laughs> so horrible and hard anyway that, that I don't act just living is the... Yes. Is the existence itself it, is existence the obstacle. Existence itself um, is the obstacle. Yes. 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 Well, I still believe we should all be paid just to wake up in the morning. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I agree. I, I, I agree. <laughs> so, Kiara, how did uh, how did you get started on this journey uh, as a writer, as a as a playwright? I mean, I think the thing I I was also a fan of theater when I was younger, and I got to see some plays in New York that had a big impact on me, and I I think. What I, what I fell in love with about the theater is that what's different about the theater than a movie for me is you can't literally see everything. So I, I just felt really kind of complicit in what I was watching and that um, it was my decision if I wanted to decide. I didn't like it and I wanted to tune out. Um, but the more interesting version of it was that I would get really involved in the play and feel like it was my responsibility to figure something out about it or my responsibility to address what that play was addressing in my life. Um, and I kind of loved that feeling. I mean, I had no concept that one could ever be a writer f to make a living um, or one could be like a professional writer. I didn't know anyone like that. And it wasn't until years and years and years later and after I was out of school that I, someone mentioned to me, you know, you could be a writer. And I thought, oh, okay, let me try that. You know, I guess I have been writing all my life, but I never, it never occurred to me that that's something one does. Uh, you, you studied composition uh, before you studied writing in yeah. a formal way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a pretty um, close mentor to me who was my aunt who was a composer and a pianist and, um, and quite successful. And so I had this great example of this woman who could be successful in the arts. And um, I, I really enjoyed music and I had a good ear. So I grew up playing piano and thinking that's what my life was going to be. And then I graduated from college and was making money doing that. And was thinking, gosh, why isn't this so, as fun as I thought it would be? This is what I've been working for all my life. And, um, you know, and so then the switch to, to writing came later. But of course, I think they're completely related. And, you know, there's that fascination you have when you start something new and you don't know what the rules are. And it really never having studied theater formally up to that point, um, there was something really freeing when I started writing and, and trying to figure that out because I didn't know what the rules were and no one had ever told me that. And, um, and so I kind of started, I got to make it up on my own for a while um, before I started studying it seriously. And, um, and that was a really helpful time. You know, more of my musical training affected that a lot, just in terms of musical structures and mm. 
you know, just an ear for dialogue um, and my the process I had used in composing. I, ha I had composed musicals before, and just my process in that where I would practice piano during the day and um, you know I'd just be waiting for the first mistake I would make and the first mistake was always like the doorway to the composition I was mm. gonna write that mm. day you know cause mm. it's, it's like when that dissonance happened it would just make my ear come alive in a different way and I'd just start composing mm. and I think that kind of bled through to my writing process also. Well and when you're talking about structure and musical structure uh, Elliot a Soldier's Fugue has a, a kind of a structure that is almost Bach-like, is that f fair to, you know, in the way that voices come in, themes come in, voices come in, and they recede, and that sort of thing? Is that what you're talking about in terms of structure and musical composition in your writing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really clear example of it. Um, I mean, in some ways, that is my living room play. That's really kind of my American family play of, of what I've written so far, and it's just about four family members dealing with their legacy as um, United States Marines. They happen to be a Puerto Rican family living in Philadelphia, but um, you know, it's it's kind of my American family play. It's about the generations of men who have done this, um, and just seeing, kind of putting their stories into relief in my mind as I was walking the streets and thinking about it, kind of roaming around, which I do for a long time before I put a single word on a piece of paper, and um, and I just started hearing them as these different themes playing on top of each other, and that theme of dissonance came in, and at times their experiences were really different from each other in my head, and at times they really kind of fell into sync. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I like to practice Bach every day as much as I can, really? and it, it wasn't so dissimilar from some of the fugue structures, so. Fascinating. That's how that idea came to be. It was, certainly wasn't a conceit I started out with. It, it, it naturally, the story and the characters led into that. Now, Lucy, how yes. how did you get started on this journey as a storyteller? I mean, there's a, I see a, a thematic that in, when I, I look at your work, yeah. at, and, I, and I love your work, and I love the way that it, it has evolved. Um, how did you, you know, come to that voice? To, how did that voice develop within you? I um, I mean, when I actually I started out, I mean, theater got me initially as an actor. You know, that was the f I think that's the first thing I got to see and I got to do like. You know, I did, you know, Peter Pan in fourth grade, and I <laughs> got to be Peter Pan, and I was like, this is it, man, you know. <laughs> I think everybody who's ever been on one of these panels was in Peter Pan. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I got to sing, and it was really exciting. Um, and then I, you know, that was sort of my trajectory initially, and then when I got out of college and, you know, had my first, like, kind of professional acting job, and I was up on stage, and I was like, this... I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, and if I'm <laughs> up on stage and this is actually happening, and I'm like, dear God, no. Um, why was that, Lucy? Why, why did that happen? Why'd you have that feeling? I, I think, I mean, I'd written all along, sort of, at the same time I'd been writing plays. I actually wrote my first play when I was in like third or fourth grade, and I, but it was never, I don't know why I never really. And I had a, one of my play. I wrote a very, very bad play that you know the theater department in college very nicely produced, and it was, it was a bad play. But you know I, that was always going along. I don't know why I didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, start say I wanted to be a writer. I don't know why. It just sort of was, and it, there was that point where I was up on stage, and it was a great. It was one of those nights where everything was clicking, <coughs> you know, and I was giving what I considered whether it was or not to be a great performance. <laughs> and, um, and I was up there and I thought it's sort of the height of this feeling of adrenaline. This isn't, I, I don't want to do this. I want something bigger. And I think with writing, 
it's you use the same muscles a lot that actors use. It's the same. You mm. enter emotionally into the world, but it's not. You get to make the whole world. And I had more. There were more people in my head. I just I wanted a bigger world. I wanted a bigger canvas. I was like right out of college, and I went up to um, the O'Neill as an electrician through this friend of mine who was a stage manager who was like, "Come on, kid," you know. Um, and August, <laughs> and August Wilson was there, and he was doing. He was up there with seven guitars, and um, I heard, you know, I, I mean, I think everyone knows that his his early drafts of plays were like incredibly long. Like, mm -hmm. so this was an incredibly long seven guitars, yeah. and um, but I sat in the theater and I I heard, <laughs> I listened to it, and I was like, oh my god, like that's that there was something. In, in the way that he was creating this world and the way that he wrote that I, I was like, that's, that's what I, I, I want that. I want to make that. I want to do that um, for where I came from. Um, and I ended up, I took all, the whole month I was up there for me to get the guts to go up and talk to him, and then I did. Um, and, and I said, you know, he said, oh, what do you write about? And I said, oh, I write about poor white trash. And he said, oh, are you trash? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I just mean, like, I'm trying to say that it is a descriptive term. And he's like, so you think you're trash, so you think you're trash, and uh -huh. you think your mother's trash, you think people you love are trash. And he's like, you know, you have to, you have to find a way to think about yourself differently first before you can actually create, you know, create mm. a world. And he started talking about how he, he's like, you know, I hear you, I think we're doing similar things. We're trying to talk about a, a segment of America that doesn't get seen. And he said, you know, who, who are the heroes in that world? Can you tell me who are your heroes? And I said, oh, um, the heroes in that world are people who can <coughs> drink like three cases of beer and mm. not, you know, not fall down. They get chased by the cops and not get caught. Um, he's like, great. So, you know, in a world, he's like, in a, in a world that is invisible, that's not represented, there's, don't you feel that there's stories that are being told? People tell stories to, re to reflect back to themselves. Um, and then from that point on, I said, yes, no, I hear you. And from that point on, I, I, like, I went and I wrote, I started to really write. I think that is the new voice, the emerging playwright, or the voices that are coming in different ways. It's a bunch of different people in very different ways saying, I, I want to talk about what we're not talking about, and I want it to be live, and I want it to be an experience that isn't on film and isn't on television, and it's something that only exists for that moment between that audience and, and, and that production, and you walk out, and hopefully in some way you're changed. David, uh, how, how did you get started with this, uh, this system of working with sexual topics, and what is it that it, it drives you in that, uh, in that way? I don't feel that I choose my topics. Um, I don't sit there and say, well, I'm going to write some salacious play about sex and restoration times. Um, <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, <laughs> I don't. I guess I just feel at home there. Um, like, like Kiara, um, I started off, my background was in music. Um, I was started on the violin at the age of three, and then I switched to the bassoon, which is yes. quite a change. Uh, and, and, and like Lucy, I was a, a, a theater junkie. Um, there was something about going to the theater and and seeing everyone sit there and, and, and watch one story and get different things out of it, and everyone is emotionally engaged in this um, and is moved by it. And I guess there was, 
you know, whether it's that sort of combination of insecurity and a show-off in me that always wanted to be like, well, I want people to be engaged and emotionally respond to what I have to say. So, you know, I, I would act and I would direct and I would, you know, do puppet shows and I would just like <laughs> everything um, to, I guess, basically say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, but this is not a psychotherapy session. <laughs> uh, uh, to address your question, one of the things that I think that we, um, as a culture, uh, I find our relationship uh, to sex, uh, to human sexuality, to sensuality, to love, to emotions, very complicated and very hypocritical. I mean, we're a very Puritan-based country. And, uh, you know, everywhere you look, there's advertising using sex. Uh, we use sex to sell just about everything. So it's, it's part of a, a, a commercial marketplace. But when it comes to actually discussing human sexuality in a real, genuine way, oh my, you can't do that. That's taboo. <laughs> that's wrong. That's out, of, that's out of bounds. Human beings connect sexually. You may not like that. People may not like that. But we connect sexually, whether we actually connect through intercourse or not. But we're sexual beings. And to pretend that that's not there or to, you know, it's just, so yes, that, that is part of my interest. It's not my sole interest, but I think how we operate as sexual beings, uh, how we connect, disconnect, avoid each other, um, poison our own lives by denying who we are, uh, and that, and I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about defining one's sexuality. That's a whole other topic. Mm. This is not about sort of the political viewpoint of it. Um, I think what, I, what I'm interested in is actually more subversive than that, which is sexuality is fluid. I think by defining oneself by one's sexuality, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, it's a big help from the closet, but it does not address the truth. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you get some of the drift of where I'm uh, That's <laughs> perfectly eloquent. That, that works, that, that's sort of what I was uh, driving at. I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about the underpinnings of that. I don't know how to make a segue to this because I wanted to talk a, a little bit about uh, Carlisle Brown and uh, the work that you've done in history. In, in the history plays. I, I think one of the plays you may fairly or unfairly be best known for is the, the African Company Presents Richard III, which oh, is this right. marvelous it's play about this <laughs> company back in the early 19th century yeah. that existed here in New York that a lot of people still don't know about. They had even two different theaters here. Uh, but not just that. I mean, there's Buffalo Hair, there's uh, Pure Confidence, and all of these plays that are set in an earlier time. What is it that sends you back to those historical topics? Uh, you know, they're, they're more about memory than they are about history. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, I mean, um, you know, just the other day I read that there was a poll um, where, um, where they said that a, a, lot of, a, a great majority of Americans believe that, um, you know, Iran um, was, um, you know, the biggest threat, you know, to the world, you know? Now, six years ago, we believed that about Iraq. You know what I mean? Like, don't you remember? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting the way we as Americans, and like, you know, remember ourselves. You know, remember what our history is and, and kind of what we're, 
disconnected to, you know. And we're always working the narrative so that we come out to being the good people, you know. We're just not a very self-reflective culture. Uh, like you, I also write a number of plays that are set in the past, and I'm often asked, uh, you know, why why history? And uh, like you, I find it fascinating that if you go see a play that's set two years ago, that's not considered history. <laughs> but you set a play set 200 years ago, that's history, and you, we separate ourselves from that. We right. have very short, very limited short-term memory as a, as a nation. And, uh, and we like to distance ourselves from the past as opposed to, if you think last week, Last week is history, technically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just so happens that these are last weeks that happened many, many last weeks ago. But, uh, you know, his, uh, history, uh, time doesn't just stop and cut off and say, okay, everything from this point back, that's history. Right, exactly. And now we're in the present. Right, right. And that, that you engage um, topics that are relevant to us now through the lens of the past to say, how did we get here? And are we walking the right path? People go to the theater for really anthropomorphic reasons, whether they realize it or not. I mean, they do want to be, you know, that old corny thing, you know, in contact with that whole, you know, sense of, you know, humanness. Yeah. You know? I mean, that, that, that kind of thing which is just totally, un, you know, explainable when you... I would say that, you know, the truth in the theater is, is nothing deep, really. Yeah. It's just that, like... You know, the people in the audience go and say, uh, yeah, that's true. I've been there. I was there this morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, when that happens, I mean, if you can nail that, and then the people in the room get an agreement, then that's the truth. Mm. You know, then you're, you're going somewhere, you know, and then at least, you know, there's hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you're not, you know... You know, like, <laughs> you know, like the great coup and, you know, saving the world yeah. and, and that way, I mean... I hope an artist would never be president. I think we would just be terrible. We'd be sitting there, well, this is true. But the, but on the other hand, that's that's true. True. <laughs> I guess that's nothing would get I mean, done. I think something about, about the country and about writing in relation to <coughs> that there's a sense that strength is is in unity and then I think that there's the mistake that gets made mm. is that unity means that we have the same story and it's one story mm. and, Agreed. and so true mm -hmm. and yeah. that's not true mm -hmm. in this country yeah. it's absolutely not true that's just not the history of our country and I think a lot of what contemporary players are doing is is fighting to rewrite history I mean it's it's a fictional genre of most of the time unless you're working in documentary theater I mean right. we're writing fiction we're right we're creating stories we're making up stories but it does involve truth, and it is writing history. I mean, your literature is also part of your history, and so I think it's just that fight for, for the for all the stories, not yeah. just for the one story that is going to be on headline news, but um, or the one story that the majority has decided, or you know, through through an election has decided is going to be like our headline for the next four right. years. It's it's fighting mm. for all the stories and saying I'm going to put this story in the bucket. It's now part of our history. Yes, but also, you know, also there's, a, there's a degree of the fact that theater, the way that theater works, is antithetical to the way our current uh, political oh, climate it's so is. so true, David. Because uh, our current political climate is about consensus. It's about agreement. We all have to toe the line and say the same thing. Theater is about debate, discourse, uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. and, and so absolutely, I agree that, 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 to my mind, strength is not agreement. Strength is discord. 
the greater the discord, mm. the stronger the, the, the unit, the play, the country is. The more discord there is, the more conversation, the more you unlock. If you all agree, well, I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> I'll just go to sleep. And it's all over with. Yeah. Right, you know, right. strength is in discord and conflict. Yeah I, yeah, I think the theater, too, is about seeing, you know, and just seeing stories, you know, just accepting the validity of stories. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, because when you put it together with what, you know, history, you know, when people say history is, uh, you know, when I was doing research for Pure Confidence, there was this jockey named Charles Stewart. You know, he couldn't write, he was illiterate, and he told his story to uh, the daughter of his former master. And he, um, when, when he went to her house, where she would dictate the story, he would get dressed up in his old costume, you know? <laughs> so we look at this document and say, well, this is a piece of history, but really it was a performance, you know? And, and what was his motivation mm. for telling the story or, you know, whatever, you know? Mm. It's, it's really not a record of anything in time. It's just a really a record of how he feel or what he thought or, you know, if you get two people at any incident, you know, you and me, we see something, you know? And then, uh, you know, I go, and you tell it to Jeffrey, and it changes a little bit, you know? You yes. know, the truth is something much more subtle than the facts. Yeah. It's that, it's that um, God thing you were talking about before, too, that it's, um, you know, I, I think that being a playwright is incredibly powerful. And uh, it's, you know, because you can give this character cancer, and <laughs> but you can also, you decide who's gonna, what story's gonna be on the stage. Mm. And it's, it's exhilarating, and it's mm. important to do that. You know, why are you telling that story? Why are you gonna say, this is, this is important for two hours of your time? You know, actually, the, the person who said, you know, you could be a writer was my mom. And, and it, it, the conversation didn't quite go down like that. She said, will you please be a writer and write this family's mm. stories at a time when, a generation was passing away in my family, and she, she kind, of, kind of begged me and kind of said, you have to do this for this family. Yeah. And it was very powerful, and you know, there's, she said, look, the way the world works is that if you get a, a word printed on a page, that is power. You have just changed history, and so, you know, it was, it was kind of this big, this big push off I had, you know, and it's, and it's, it's a hard <coughs> thing to think about when I'm just sitting there trying to get a word on a page, but at the same time, I, I think it is, you know, she reminded me of just how powerful, you know, literature is and, and words are and publishing is in this country, that that's, you know, that's a forum. Well, let's talk about some positive experiences people have had with development, because we all know about development hell that playwrights go through in time. So, so but why don't we talk a little bit about that. Kiara, can you uh, share a little bit with your uh, development? Uh, do you have a positive development experience for us? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, was, I was thinking of Page 73 Productions, who um, premiered Elliot in New York, and they have a fellowship, and I, and so they helped me develop that play for a year, and just getting that money, just getting the fellowship was enough to um, get me to finish writing the play. You know, I, I think another thing that's odd about a lot of these development things is that they say development, but they want a finished script mm. to develop. You know, whereas page 73, they said that they had this fellowship to develop a piece, and I said, okay, I have had this 10 pages sitting in my drawer for a year, and I don't know where to go with it. Help me develop it. And they took it and they said, okay. And so by the, they said I was a semifinalist and I was like, all right, I'm gonna write 40 more pages. And then by the time um, I found out I got the fellowship, I had written a draft of the play and they really did help me develop it with an eye towards production. And, and what worked so nicely was that it wasn't, 
about me fixing the problems of the play. It wasn't about um, me being a good playwright. It was about <coughs> us as a, as a group of collaborators. It was about the director hearing it a couple times and thinking, gosh, how am I going to solve this one set question that keeps coming up? So we were all on, we were all on the line and all collaborating as theater artists to, to, to develop the play together, basically. Well, one of the things about development that I think is problematic is the mindset that it puts in the writer that we are somehow deficient uh, and that our plays need to be fixed. Yeah, it's like they think that like we, mm -hmm. we found it on a computer one morning and printed it out, <laughs> and then they'll go and tell us what it's, what it's about right. and what right. it is. It, it because we're too stupid to know how. Well, how, that we how need the, to be helped. We need yes. yes. Um, yeah, but yeah. I feel like you know that a lot of this we start talking about playwrights and we're like you know the, the theater's this and the theater's that, but there's you know there's a lot of smaller theaters out there and, and sometimes bigger theaters who are caught in the same sort of economic hell that we're all caught in, who are like trying to make good theater. Like for me. Rattlestick is one of those places. Like mm. they like you as a writer. They're like, we, you know, come. We'll do keep doing your plays. Get slammed by every critic in New York. We'll do your next one. <laughs> well, you know, you know it's, it's the transient. The Atlantic it's, too. It's really the good. transient yeah. nature of the theater, which is very often the problem. You know, and I think development is something that, you know, a writer needs to take charge of itself. I mean, you know, for me in Minneapolis, there are some great actors. I mean, I think the best dramaturg is an actor that's saying, why am I saying this? I mean, because that's what we're doing. We're in the business of putting words into actors' mouths. Yes. And, and, and those are, I mean, for me anyway, those wonderful people are my primary collaborators. And when you, yes. you know, when you work with people over time, you know, I mean, not only the, do they get you, and, and understand what's there on the page, but you know, they won't allow you to be a slacker. You know what I mean? It's very true. You know, and so, <laughs> I mean, so I do that. I get my people and try to find a room somewhere in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, there are a lot of great actors who are really happy doing there that are really smart about plays. You know, and, and that's what we're looking for, smart actors, you know, not necessarily somebody that looks the part, because it's theater, it's an illusion. We can, you know, very often, uh, you know, like in the Big Blue Nail, there were two actors who were really much too young for the part, mm. but they're good, they get it, you know, they kind of know what's, they're courageous, you know, they know what's on the, they make a choice, and they, you know, they go out there, I mean, that's, those are, like, you know, the rehearsal for, you know, the reading of Pure Confidence the other night, these actors had been in a number of productions of this play, and I gave a note, and, and, that, and this actor just explored that thing, you know, right there, you know, it was like, he'd seen that play, and he said, oh, there's a door here, you know, there's a door behind these words, let's, look, let's go in this room, you know, and it was really quite wonderful, and we just you know, made these discoveries. I think that's where the discoveries are. You know, with the the actor, with the text, you know, just banging away. That's what, and the development process puts you in that kind of room where you feel that you can, you know, then things but are happening. I think it's also important to go back to something that Kiera said, which is that production in itself is development. Yeah, oh yeah. Right. And that, that ultimately, you know, that the second production is actually the one where you've figured out the kinks in the first production is the one. And that's why, I mean, I also think like a theater like the Atlantic, you know, who I've just produced me, where you have like bigger names theaters who are willing to 
really put the play up that the, the writer envisions, you know, because I think also there's, there's places like, you know, P73 and Rattlestick, which are, are known and attended, but as you also get higher profile, I think the pressure gets bigger and it's harder to take the risks and be honest and be vulnerable and out there with whatever, you know, the collaboration actually is. So I think also that's important to sort of like, as much as we say, you know, why are you not, as much as, as, much as we talk about the ways that development is wrong and sort of the, corp the corporatization of theater, to also call out to the people out there who are fighting the good fight. Well, I just think that a playwright should be in charge of the development of their own play, not mm -hmm. the organization. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with a number of very fine collaborators, uh, directors like Peter Dubois and Michael Wilson, Mark Brokaw, and that collaboration and between our our, between ourselves, we sort of dictate uh, what the play needs. We explore what the play needs and develop it accordingly with, with um, we'll Help. do a reading, uh, I will go back and work on it, we'll sit around with actors and read it through. Mm. Sometimes the director and I will just get in a room, make a whole slew of martinis and go through the script and <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> and that, you know, I, I find something out about the play and we have a discussion. Uh, but then there's the development towards the production, which is the institutional development, and that's very separate. That's different than yeah, the development true, of the David. play. And so I think that's very true. the development process for the play needs to be led by the playwright, because oftentimes we can succumb to the sort of culture of victimhood mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know what's best for, you tell me what's best for my play. What should I, oh, another reading? The 15th reading? Fine. <laughs> As opposed to saying, I've had five readings. <laughs> I don't need any more. Yeah, you yeah. want to do a reading to raise money, to market it? Find another way. You're not going to pimp my work out for your benefit. The playwright has to be in control of the process. Right. I don't think the playwright necessarily has to be separate from that institutional part, though. I, I mean, the thing that I, I think the worst case scenario with the development uh, series or the reading series and stuff is that the theater, I, I have been at readings where I have felt honestly like the theater has no, there's no stakes at all and they don't really care how the play is developed. You know, yeah. it, it's just a part of a, it's just in the next page in the program kind of thing. It's all about stakes. I mean, we talk about stakes on the page, but off the page, behind the scenes, I think if a theater feels really passionately about a project, you know, then the, they're saying to the playwright, what do you need? You know, we want to help you get, we feel True. passionate about this play, what do you need? And then there are stakes involved. Everyone involved feels committed. And I think when, when the administrators and the artists involved feel that sense of passion about the project, that's when good development happens. I mean, I've been developing, you know, In the Heights is, is kind of a different sort of, process, it was really, it's been very interesting to do that at the same time as I was working on Elliot at Soldier's View, which is a very, which was a small company, um, a shorter piece, a, a much lower budget, and then to be working with these commercial producers who have done this before and they develop new pieces and they feel so passionately about the project. Um, and they have always let it be artist driven, you know, while kind of kicking our butts and, you know, and giving us support, you know, but I think it's that passion that's important. They bring it to the table and they've said, you know what, I don't think another, I don't think seeing this draft in front of music stands is going to give us any more information. I think it's time to get it on its feet. What do you guys think? And we're like, yeah, let's, let's get it there. Let's try it. Let's see what happens when this stage, this paragraph long stage direction becomes a 15 minute segment in the play, you know, that, or in the musical. Um, 
And I think it's about the passion of, of kind of the producers and the artists at the, the table collaborators. there. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the nature of institutions sometimes, I don't think it's intentional. It's just the way that they look at themselves, that they, the solution is always a system. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's yeah. not really accepting the fact, <laughs> right. you yeah. know, that the thing is a bloody mystery. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. I mean, I mean, if they want to develop my work, fine. You know, as far as I could go. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the truth is, is that like, you know, m maybe I get it because of the way the water coming on me in the shower in the morning. <laughs> I mean, like, you, know, <laughs> you know, but they're saying like, okay, we'll work on the fifteenth and uh, work till the thirtieth, and then you'll have such and such. And you know, I tell them, you know, in, yeah. In you the know, final the analysis, the I think. In the final analysis, I think that, that it's interesting you brought up the idea of a system because sadly a lot of these theaters, they have these systems set up and they plug the projects into them. Exactly. Rather than finding the projects, oh, we're excited by this play. The system right. around the project. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Because what's good for my play won't be good for your right, play or your play and vice versa. Right. And yeah. even with one playwright, you know, you can exactly. write one play you'll write in a month and it'll be done and ready to go and another play will take you six years, yeah. you know. For instance, exactly. to think of <laughs> developing Elliot the same ways in the Heights would be ridiculous. They're right. two very different animals, yeah. and they require their own uh, their process. own process, yeah. their own structure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like to me we're fully developed here. <laughs> 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 Thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Jeffrey Eric Jenkins, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theatre. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequaled forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org.